Welcome to Siblinghood of Recovery. Hello, recovery community. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. This podcast is very special to me. I interviewed Susan Austerman, the founder of Veloma Memorial Gardens. I will put a link into the show notes that will take you to her website. And one of the first things you will see is a tracker of U.S. opioid deaths since 1999. We are over, significantly over half of a million. Susan created these gardens in honor of her son, Tyler, who she lost in October of 2020. And her vision for the gardens is simply to recognize and honor the children that so many parents have lost to this opioid crisis. As taken directly from her website, she says, we all have different beliefs about what has become of our children's energy now and what we see and feel when we envision them. But for me, it's never dark or stagnant. They deserve beautiful places where, when we visit, we can feel their lights continue to shine through the natural world around us and embrace not only our grief, but the joy that they brought to our lives. The resources that are on this page are incredible. There's so much thought that goes into the information placed as Susan captures all those who are dedicated to this effort of bringing awareness and change to how we are dealing with the opioid crisis. I encourage any listener to visit the website. It is profound, it is deep, and it is forthright in the clear message that we have got to change how we approach substance use and addiction. As I've said so many times before, addiction is not one-dimensional. Every individual is different. Every addiction is different. It is not about one person having a problem. It is about an entire ecosystem of family, of culture, of schools, communities approaching what happens when somebody becomes addicted to a substance. Dope Sick is one of the films that has brought attention to the money that's behind some of these challenges, the money that's invested in getting drugs onto the street, and the money that is not invested in getting methodologies of recovery to people who need it the most. 30 days of treatment, it's not going to address the deep problem of a layered substance use disorder. There's so much to tell on the stories of those we lose to substance use disorders. Please visit the site if you can. Please donate. And here's Susan Osterman. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Susan Osterman. I navigated my son's heroin addiction for about six years before I lost him. Um, I've learned so much since his passing. Um, <laughs> here, here, we'll pause a little bit. I'll tell um, how I found you. I found you through research on what avenues are available to moms. There's a, a mom group that I'm a member of, and we have an admin there. She's an incredible leader. And she said, you know, there has to be other ways of addressing how we manage our, our children's addiction. In kindergarten, we're told we're all like snowflakes. And then for some odd reason, by the time these kids get to high school, they have to conform. Well, it's, it's funny you say snowflakes. And I think that 
my message is very similar. You know, there's countless reasons why a person begins using substances. Countless. There has to be that many ways out. And, and we can't be closed off to any of them. We get so caught up in the day-to-day struggles and stress and worry and fear and constant, you know, living in a state of trauma while we're watching our child, you know, and hoping for the best. And, and we lose sight sometimes of our own mom gut. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, that is the most important part of this journey. No one has the answers. If anybody had the right answer, our, our overdose death rate wouldn't continue to be rising. We have to think out of the box. We have to learn from other people. But I think that the number one most important thing is listening to your mom gut. And that's what you regret if the worst happens. Everybody's different. You can't go by the rules of kick them out. Don't give them money. You know, all those things. They are individual circumstances. But the one thing we all have in common is our intuition. And it's so hard to lose sight of that when you're dealing with a child with substance use disorder, because they're sick. You take them to the doctor, right? Just like anybody else, any other illness, you go in and you do what the doctor tells you. We trust them. But the truth is that they don't have the answers, but we assume they do. And so we lose sight of that. Plus, we have all of the judgments from family and friends and and our own shame and guilt and what am I doing wrong and what's wrong with my child. And I really believe that the answers are within us. We know when our kids are hungry and thirsty, when they're babies, all those things, that doesn't go away when they get older. But, you know, I, I went all over the place. I went from tough love and, and, you know, to probably borderline enabling, enabling. I don't like that work. And, and there was no right or wrong at the time. I mean, I can look back now in hindsight. It's, it's so clear when it's over because all of those other things go away. All of the judgments and, and expectations of everyone else, they're just gone. Distractions, yes. Yeah, they, you see clearly what your child needed, but it's too late. Yeah. And, and the regrets aren't little things like uh, you know, doing this or doing that. It's more the times where he was saying, help me. And I was saying, no, you can't stay here. And everything inside of me was just saying, no, this is wrong. You want to love him, hug him. Um, those are the regrets afterward. So I think that we just have to really stay open-minded and, and really listen to our insights, go inward. I mean, reading, understanding addiction and understanding the science of it is very important. But other than that, You know, and I don't talk much about um, my son's journey because out of respect for him, that is his journey, right? right? And he, he, by the grace of God and by his willpower too, he's doing fine today. I don't put any expectation on him. His plans are his plans. And I've never walked taller. I've never walked prouder than when I started helping him. Yeah. You know, and I got rid of society's definition of the perfect family. I want to talk a little bit more about going through this process. You've also introduced me to the concept of the the mom's group. And if you can highlight that and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of information on that group. Yeah. Moms for all paths. 
It's Mm -hmm. um, run by Kathleen Cochran. And I just can't say enough good things about these women. They, and it's not just women. It's not just moms. There's definitely men and there's people in there that don't have children. Um, And that's the thing is there's so many different options to say, you know, and and everybody's struggling with the same problems, but it's all science-based, evidence-based. There's research galore, plus compassion, you know, just as humans and, and looking at our children differently. The research that she puts in to the information that goes out into that group is just, I don't know how she does, it, honestly. I, I know she doesn't sleep much, but it's incredible because there's such an awareness of the need for different options. Moms for all past. We are all past recovery. Some people are not ready to stop using and coming to accept that is a difficult thing, but it's reality. It is absolutely. And, 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 and we need to keep our children alive and healthy and they deserve to be treated properly, especially in the medical system where we see so many failures that just leads to the cycle, making them feel worse about themselves, leading them back to self-medicating if that's what they're using for. And it's not a hard sell to love your child. It's you know? not a hard sell <laughs> to love your You said that to me. Yeah. Oh gosh, when we first connected and I'm like, that is just, if that was our mantra, as we learn about this, it completely shifts the lens of how we're viewing our next step. Right. And you called me out directly, which I really admire. You know, I'm not a fan of the 12 steps, you know, but for me, it's helped and that's okay. What it helped me do is go into my uh, childhood and my family system and start healing that as well. Part of the messaging that I put forward is when there's addiction, the underlying contributing factors, it's never just one thing. It's a mixed bag. Right. So I, I'd like you to talk about that too, if you can. Sure. And it's, and it's not always what we perceive as a trauma, you know, uh, one person's trauma can be, you know, lifelong, horrible physical abuse where another one is my parents got divorced. That's a, that's trauma. Yep. And, you know, we need to respect that. There's usually something underlying that's causing a person to resort to these coping skills. But I I love what you said about how it made you go back and see yourself because that's the best thing we can do for our kids is heal ourselves. Yeah. And be a mirror, show them what it's like to heal yourself and go inward and and let them hopefully follow that path and look at their own. Our relationship uh, shifted when I stopped expecting anything from him. If you were to look at it from a brainwave or, or just a diagram, it's taking the focus away from the child and into avenues that exist for treatment, for medical, for counseling. And I do want to talk a little bit about how there is a movement towards harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Okay. From your experience, what can you tell a mom who's in a situation right now, desperate? Not just talk, listen listen to what they need. Harm reduction, it, it's keeping them alive. It, it's its reducing the harms. You know, you hear so many things. Or, let me give you one example. Um, you hear often, don't give your child money. No matter what, don't give them money. Uh, pay their bills or give them gift cards or all these other things. And then 
And these are things that I did not do. Let me just put that right out there when my son was struggling. This is, this is new to me since he passed. Why? They're going to use. They're going to get that money. Maybe it's better sometimes to have the money than to, God forbid, think of some of the other things they have to do to get that money. That's kind of an extreme harm reduction, but they are, they're going to do it. Us withholding something is not going to make them, oh, I'm going to stop today because mom's not going to give me $10. They're still going to get it. They're going to um, get it. Yeah. So I think that in looking at it more that way and where you don't, you know, put expectations on what you're giving, you know, here's $10, knowing full well that they're going to do whatever they want with it and let go of it. Don't try to control it. I see a lot of times moms doing things like, I bought my son a phone when he got out of rehab, but he relapsed, so I took it back. Okay, that's not unconditional love. And, and really, and that's really what I relate harm reduction to. It is unconditional love. Love them where they're at. Give them what they need to heal as much as they can. You know, and that doesn't mean put yourself in danger either. If they have a habit of you know, taking things from your house, you have to protect yourself. You still protect yourself. Mm -hmm. My son, towards the end, he understood that. He knew that he couldn't trust his impulses and respected that he couldn't be alone in my house towards the end. And he slept outside. And it was just an understanding. And it was yeah. okay. So it's interesting how you're talking about the harm reduction and you're talking about engaging that child's situation, right? What I see happening is that you're building a bridge towards gradual increased communication and gradual increased a relationship again. Right. And I had a lot of professionals bluntly tell me while my son was in treatment, what are you doing? Right. You know, let him heal. And then, then they navigated the building of the relationship, building of the bridge and recreating that. So in essence, I see that there's situations like you experienced where if you have that capability to connect the hearts again, you're going to have to do it while he's using. Right. And that's the challenge, right? There's a, there's a lot of black and white thinking yeah. and and so the gray area, what I'd like you to do is if you can walk through the medical aspect of what you experienced in that gray area, the black and white part of it. Our medical system and the way that they treat people with substance use disorder is appalling. It's, this is something that I spend a lot of time on now advocating for people who need medical care. They need care and they are treated horrible. If they get the care, um, well, let me go back. I'll tell you what happened. With him. Um, and just another quick example of harm reduction will lead into this story. Um, safe syringe programs. Most communities don't want them. They say, oh, they promote drug use. No one's going to start using or start injecting drugs because there's a safe syringe program. What it does is promote safe drug use, keeps them alive. If your child is standing in front of you and is going to inject a drug into them and you have a clean needle in your hand and the needle that they're using, you know, is dirty or contaminated. Are you going to give them your clean needle? Because mm. regardless of what they have, they're going to do it. So let's keep them safe. Tyler was arrested for a clean needle and he violated probation and ended up going to jail for two weeks on a probation violation for a clean needle. That put him 
I guess, in a space where it was trying to obtain a clean needle was too dangerous because he could get in trouble. So at some point he took that risk and he was injecting with, you know, use needles, sharing needles with his girlfriend, things like that. Mm. He ended up contracting endocarditis, which is an infection in, in your heart. He had to have open heart surgery. Now, this was during COVID, so I couldn't be there. I had no idea what was going on. He had been living on the street for about three months prior to that. And I thought he had COVID, called it COVID-3. And um, when I took him in, I had never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. You hear about other uh, infections like and hepatitis C, HIV. I had never heard of endocarditis. Um, and he had a bad, he, you know, his organs were shutting down. He had a... Uh, one and a half centimeter vegetation on his heart. And I was getting nothing from the doctors. If they even would call me back, it was like, yeah, he'll be fine. You know, that's not, he needs antibiotics, but you know, he'll, he'll recover fine. And it was something different every day. It was like, I just had no idea. So I had to, this is where I really started to realize I had to advocate for him. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started doing my own research and learned that he had a 40% mortality rate if he had the heart surgery on his first hospitalization. So, and that was with like a one centimeter vegetation or more. So they wanted to just send him home with a pick line. And I researched that and found that most home nursing won't come and clean out a pick line for someone who has a history of injection drugs. Okay. So you guys are going to send him home with this pick line that I'm not going to be able to have cleaned for him. You know, anyway, I had to find a surgeon who would do the surgery, have him transferred. And even then, it was his birthday, his last birthday. And I took cupcakes to the hospital. And I couldn't see him. Um, I could, there was no visiting, but I dropped them off. And they let me come and visit him the day after he had his surgery. And that the cupcakes were in the window. They never gave them to him. It was like a week and a half after his birthday. Like that freaking hard. You know, yeah. I understand COVID. I was careful. I, I put everything, like napkins, plates, kept eating the whole shot. You couldn't celebrate his birthday with it, him. It's it's the it's the empathy that is yeah. lacking with this addiction, yeah. you know, and And basic medical uh, care. I mean, he he came home after having his chest cut open, open heart surgery, no pain. This is two weeks after this, no pain. And when he was in the hospital and he would tell me, mom, they're just not giving me enough. They were giving him a really low dose of methadone for pain. And Mm -hmm. and he'd say, you know, they're torturing me. And I'm like, well, maybe you're exaggerating. You know, maybe he's drug seeking because it's always in the back of your mind. And looking back, I mean, he was hurt. He was in a lot of pain and, and he was just not treated and like anyone else would. They wouldn't do that to our mother if they went in and had open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. It's a definite yeah. bias. And there was also an article that I read. He had a medical marijuana license. What did that have to do with his care? He's like the forest dump of drug policy. He's like every little. (laughs) Yeah. What happened was um, after he was incarcerated, 
now this happened after the heart surgery. And first of all, I thought after that hospital experience, he was never going to use again. This was in my mind, it was like, wow, you almost died. Like if there's a rock bottom, this is it. Yeah. You're never going to, and the emotional and psychological journey that he had while he was in the hospital was very intense. So it was just like a, a given he was done. Um, when he did relapse, that's when he ended up getting picked up on the probation violation and went to jail. So nobody notified us that his Medicaid was cut off. And he, did. He, was, he did get a medical marijuana card to help with cravings, which helped very much. So. Yeah. Uh, when he got out of jail, they suspended his Medicaid and never notified us. Then... Oh, and he couldn't go to a recovery house that accepted medical marijuana patients because he had to go to a probation-approved recovery house, which none of those accepted medical marijuana patients, so he couldn't even do that anymore. He ended up relapsing, and he used, like, once. He left my house, and an hour later, he was, Mom, I'm, I, I messed up. I want to go to detox. I, I, so he went to go try to go to detox, which he didn't even really need. He just wanted to get in inpatient somewhere. And um, he was told that he um, he didn't have insurance anymore and they couldn't. So usually if you don't have Medicaid while they're applying for your Medicaid, the county will cover your care mm-hmm. until your Medicaid kicks in. Every county has this program. And um, they told him, no, we can't fund you because you have a medical marijuana card. We can't fund any patients with medical marijuana. Come to find out later, that was just absolutely not true. It was completely misinterpreted. Just because uh, of the law, they weren't reading the law correctly. Right. Right. It, they they were assuming that. Um, well, federally, they didn't approve of marijuana to treat opioid use disorder, but in Pennsylvania, it was one of the conditions that you could get a medical marijuana card for. So the county and the state didn't communicate with each other. Counties were telling patients that if they had a card, period, they couldn't fund them. The language said, we cannot provide funds to those who treat patients with medical marijuana. That was the law, that they weren't going to fund providers who provide marijuana to patients for abuse disorder. Well, the counties interpreted as we're not going to fund patients. There was a clarification made from SAMHSA to the state uh, 18 months before this all came out. And our state never passed that clarification down to the counties because the, the funding goes SAMHSA, single state authorities to single county authorities. That's how that flows through. Multiple states had medical marijuana for this. And they went to SAMHSA and said, you know, can you clarify? Can we give this? You know, can we fund patients? Mm-hmm. And they had this meeting and, and SAMHSA said yes. And they clearly outlined the regulations and how it didn't apply directly to patients. And our state received that in an email and never shared it with the counties. So, which is, is tragic. Yes. Right. It's and it's just, not just the state because even our county had other funding streams they could use, but they chose not to. They chose not to. You know, to me, it, it's just shocking how. I had to just go multiple places to find out what to do. You know, how can you, with what you've gone through, I mean, what have you done to address this? 
Well, the language was, was changed in the medical marijuana prohibition. Um, that was a collaborative effort, collaborative effort for people that knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to directly work with the state on it, and they just kind of stopped talking to me. So that's when I went to the media, and he did a story about it. Um, and then there were some other advocates that learned about it and went directly to SAMHSA. Although there were some local politicians that were trying to take credit for it. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but because I have the whole email chain out, email chain of how it happened. So that was um, that was done. The other thing that I'm I'm a big advocate for is uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, because about six eight months before he passed, my therapist of 20 years said to me, um, who do you know there's an underground treatment for heroin addiction, right? I said, no, what are you talking about? John Hopkins is not underground in my book and they're doing it. So. Well, this is Ibogaine. It's a little different. But, yeah, um, yeah. I had never heard of it. Her son was, had been years ago, the president of the sensible or students for sensible drug policy mm-hmm. and he has like a neurobiology degree and just this really awesome. brilliant person and um, she said yeah talk to my son so I reached out to him and um, I was like what you, this Ibogaine has a 65 percent or more success rate in treating opioid addiction mm-hmm. and we're not using suboxone and methadone which I won't talk negative about it's what we have but the success rate is only 15 to 20 percent and that, that just started a whole nother rabbit hole. But I, he, it was COVID. He couldn't get his passport renewed. I was going to take him to South America because it was going to cost about $10,000. About the same as a funeral. Who mm-hmm. cares? We'll do it. Um, the risks involved very low. I think at the time, the statistics were like one in 400 passed away during the treatment. But they were people who had existing heart conditions or they found they had taken substances that they weren't transparent about, that they didn't know what. So the statistics were on our It's still better than using injecting drugs. So we were going to do it. Uh, he couldn't get his passport renewed because of COVID. And then he contracted endocarditis. And so he was no longer a candidate because of his heart. Yeah. Uh, so that after he was gone, it's like, wait a minute. Let's back up. Why isn't this available to everyone? So I've been doing a lot of advocacy work on getting psychedelics off of Schedule One. There's no reason for it. There just isn't. When I said when you said underground in the last uh, 12 months, there is a real strong push. Again, it's in the neuroscience arena to get this out to the general public. And uh, you know, I'll highlight the John Hopkins study that's ongoing. And the gentleman that leads that, because, you know, this does actually go back to trauma. How mm-hmm. is the brain processing the events of a, maybe a normal challenge in a person's life and an, another brain is just, it's so traumatic that they need to self-medicate. There's not a clear process for just everybody to, to heal that, you yeah, know, another path, another path that we need to have access to. Absolutely. That could work for someone. Even the others for healing trauma, which can heal, you know, substance use disorders. It's still another path. It's it's a wonderful thing. The statistics are amazing. Um, yeah. But then you look into the corruption. Why is the schedule? Well, 
Big Pharma. Big Pharma. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we had a big win yesterday. They were trying to, um, the DEA was trying to schedule some analogs or tryptamines. And we had a hearing coming up where we were going to fight it. And they withdrew. They're, they're not doing it. So Good. hopefully someone over there is listening. Yeah, I hope so. And it's interesting because you have, even in general medicine, there's so much more leaning towards exercising, eating right, getting sun. I'm so happy to see that because we have got to stop solving solutions by throwing big pharma's production at it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first things I did after her passed was I went off all of my medication. Did you really? Yeah. I said, well, for two reasons. One, I felt that it was important to feel my grief. I didn't want to mask it. Mm. And I knew it was going to be horrific, but I felt like that was important. And also because I started reading all of these these different things, the corruption, Purdue, all of the other stories. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. What's yeah. happening? So I did. I and I'm sure many people have seen Dope Sick. Everybody should watch that. They did a great job with that. First, I, the gratitude that I have to you for telling your story is immense. Um, I did I did share with you, there's a couple of moms in our group who have lost their children. I can't do anything but listen, right? That's all I can do. But yet I see that there's this, you know, clicking in the head, almost like a Rolodex for the older generation out there. <laughs> of, but in all these things go through any mother's head. I had a good conversation with my son and he's like, you know, cause I, if I had not put him in, he was five, nine, 120 pounds. He's like, mom, it happened the way it should, because we've all learned so much, you know, and I, I know I'm a different person because of it, but I want to go back to that gut instinct. What would you say to a mom that's just struggling right now with all this information going into her head? Try to tune it out. That That is the most important thing. And I know it sounds impossible sometimes. Try not to listen to the, the judgments, the expectations. Try to reconnect with yourself because I really, really believe that's where the answers are in each situation. And it's, it's extremely difficult. I don't say it lightly. I know that everybody's not walking around all zen. I'm listening to myself. But we do have that gut. Our physical symptoms, we need to listen to them. Um, like I said, that's that's probably the one thing that I really do beat myself up about. The other things, it's you know, you did the best you could with the knowledge you had at the time. I know better now. It's too late for me, but I try to help other moms, you know, listen to their gut, and um, I try to also be there for people to ask, "What would you have done differently?" Because that's mm-hmm. a question I wanted to ask people all the time. You know, friends of his, his. They passed away. I wanted to say, well, what would you have done differently? What eats you up? What keeps you up at night? But you can't go to a mom and say, so tell me what you did wrong with your son and why did he die? How do I keep mine alive? You know, so I, I try to be very open with other moms that are still struggling with their kids so that they can ask questions. And it's not, you know, I'm sad all the time. You're not going to upset me. You know, <laughs> I talk to it. Um, and I, I just think it's very important. Yeah. I go into the um, Facebook groups still very often to try to talk to moms. And one of the things I see a lot is where people will say, I think it would be just easier if he was gone. Mm. He'd, be, he'd be out of 
he'd be at peace. Maybe I could have my life back, you know, all these different things, which I did the same. I had buried him in my mind a million times. I had the funeral playlist. I just want to say it's not better. They take up more space now, not being here. That grief is always there. It's unfathomable. There's no, there's no hope to get better. Literally, all you can do is try to prevent it for others. Yeah, really. You, your whole life has changed. You're changed. You're a completely different person. You redefine joy, happiness, all of those things. But advocacy comes so naturally because none of us want more in our club. You know, we're out there to to save lives, and and we see things differently, and and we have some power because there's it's hard for a politician to stand in front of a mother who's grieving. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you want to leave? Tell me about Tyler. Just what would you want to leave this with? He was, and most are, most people who use substances, they are the most empathetic, compassionate people. And I think that that's a contributing factor. They feel so much. Insensitive. Yes. Yeah. He, he was the, he introduced himself to the new kids first. He would show up on Christmas Eve with strangers. Mom, they've got nowhere to go. You know, I mean, he was just such a sweet kid. He, if a kid was down the street selling lemonade, run home, get his money, and go buy it all. He was just a, and he was his own little advocate. You know, I remember him working for a dentist who was doing something he didn't agree with, and he stood up and he wasn't going to allow that. He, um, he was my mini me. <laughs> Susan we were very close um it was just that relationship where you don't have to say things you can just look at each other and go mm-hmm. yep and he uh he wanted to have children very bad I found a letter that he had written a couple months before he passed and said that he wanted to have a daughter and he wanted to name her Olive because that's just effing beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful name. He was, and uh, one of the extraordinary things that happened was he had a tattoo across his chest, and I don't remember what it like. I don't remember him telling me what it said. I'm sure he did, but at the time, it's just like whatever, stay alive. You know? <laughs> um, and it was in Latin. And about a month after he passed, I got the photos from the funeral director. I asked him to take pictures of all his tattoos. And um, I looked at it and I was like, what does that mean? I, I, and I looked it up and I, I thought I thought was reading into it right. And then I asked my daughter's fiance who actually gave him the tattoo. And it says, in death, I am born. Oh, wow. And I was just, yeah, it was. Uh, and he didn't have any reason for it. This wasn't a common tattoo. This wasn't, you know, that was my first thought. Well, maybe this is something Jim Morrison had and he just wanted to be and and my daughter's fiance said, No, he he came up with it. He wanted it. There was nobody else. And you know, and I, death I am born. Yeah. That's and, profound. And I have to try to grab onto that to get through. You know, I've got, you know, some of these changes that we're making may not have happened had he not. Well, thank you for that. 
So um, I would love to close with your recommendation of anything that people can watch um, and you don't have to give it to me now, but if there's one, you know, website that they can visit, but also if there's a couple of other ones that you want me to put on my website and let people know about, but if there's one area to learn more about this, where would somebody go about harm reduction and uh, moms for all paths? Okay. Facebook is a great, amazing group. I'll send you links for that. Um, there's also some really good books out there too. I think it's a combination of learning about listening to yourself and the science. We need to understand what drug seeking behavior really is, you know? Yes. You know, things like that. Like let's understand addiction. Things like that. But I'll send you some links for sure. Absolutely. Cause this is not just uh, it's, it's a very deep and layered uh, conversation. So, well, Susan, thank you so much. And I greatly appreciate your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Susan Ousterman. She is an incredibly generous person to tell this story. Even if this helps one parent out there who's dealing with this, you know what? I'm good. I do have a feeling that Susan has much broader sights and will help a significant amount of people to understand the facets of opioid addiction. So I'll leave you with this. I put all the links that were mentioned in the show notes. And if I do get more, I'll continuously update them. I wish you a good week ahead. Be good to yourself. Love yourself. And if you're going through this, we're all doing hard things. And like Susan said, just remember, it's not a hard sell to love your child. All right. Talk to you later.